Hello, welcome back. We are going to switch gear now and we are going to look at um, some different topics. We're going to put ourselves into the place of being a polemicist again. We have done quite a few um, polemics um, and challenging Islam over the um, uh, previous sessions. And so what I want us to do is to, to get our, our minds into gear um, to becoming questioners of Islam. And before we do that, I just want to say something very, uh, uh, very clearly. When I first started reaching Muslims, I uh, really struggled uh, to know how to ask probing questions of Islam. I not only struggled to defend my own faith, because even though I had a Bible degree, I didn't know how to take what I knew from my Bible and I knew to be true. I didn't know how to communicate it uh, for the Muslim mind, or even for the unbelieving mind. And that was something I had to learn as I continued to work and talk with Muslims. Now, one of the things I then had to learn was to become a polemicist, a challenger of Islam, the kind of approach to an unbelieving mind that Jesus and his disciples and, his, and then the apostles and the early church um, always, uh, always uh, did when they were engaging with unbelievers. They were polemicists. Jesus was a polemicist. He was a challenger of false ideologies. That was something I really struggled to learn how to do. And I grew up in a culture and in a family where you don't really challenge people. You don't really, uh, even if you disagree with, with people, you often you stay quiet. Um, in English society, we don't tend to always uh, disagree. An English person, when they disagree with you, would tend to be quiet. And uh, that's kind of the culture that I grew up in. And suddenly I found myself in this uh, Islamic culture where they were challenging my, uh, my faith. They had no, no qualms whatsoever challenging my faith. And I had to step out outside of my own uh, co uh, comfortable uh, zone that I used to function in, I had to um, really step into a, a, a way of communicating with others that was so against my nature and what uh, was was right according to my culture. And just as, as, a, as a person, some of you may be uh, looking at uh, me and, and, and people like um, what we do and think, well, it comes easy to them. Uh, they've done their degrees, they've got the Bible degree, they've got their master's degree, uh, they're debating with Muslims. That's just something they've always done. But it took years and years and years of hard work and of working with Muslims and of being encouraged by fellow Christians to step out of my own fear, my natural fears that I had, as well as my own insecurities that I had, um, to to allow God, if you like, or to, to ask God to, to use me in an environment that's very difficult. So I just wanted to encourage you from the outset, don't think you have to be a super duper professional. Um, professional Christian to even be able to use this material. Some of you uh, will know some of this material. For some of you, this is new. And even if you are quite well versed in Islam, there will hopefully have been new ideas that you've gleaned through the sessions that we have done together. But I just want to encourage you that if you want to be used of God, that's all he needs from you. You don't have to be the best debater in the world. You don't have to have the best mind. I am dyslexic. I have struggles learning. I have dyslexia. And so for me to, to actually learn, is it takes double the time as anyone else because my brain works in a different way. And I've had to learn to reorganize the way my mind works to even begin to grasp these issues. And now I can debate in the public sphere, but it's because one, I asked God to use me. And two, I had a good team around me who encouraged me to face my fears and my struggles and my insecurities and to step out and to become courageous. And of course, remember being courageous doesn't mean you don't ever fear. You can have natural fear, but there's two things you respond to human fear. 
And a lot of Muslims have fear when they, a lot of Christians have fear when they look at the Islamic realm or the Islamic world and they, and they have to speak up for their Christian faith. The way we respond to fear is two things. One, courage doesn't mean you never have any sort of apprehension or fear. Courage is you do what God has asked you to do, i.e. share your faith with a Muslim, regardless of what, how you feel. You step out and you have the courage because God has given you that courage and that right to speak for your faith. But furthermore, the Bible says very clearly that perfect love casts out fear. And God gave me that verse very early on when I really didn't know how to communicate my faith with a Muslim. And God gave me that verse very early on. And I realized that when he talks about perfect love casting out fear, I thought if I perfectly love the Muslim, if I have God's love for the Muslim, it will empower me to just have that fear dissipate and be replaced with my love for the person. So I fear the religion of Islam. I'm a little bit Islamophobic, like my colleague in India, in, in England. I, I fear what Islam can do to my nation back in, back in, back in Europe. But, but I love the people of this religion. And so the love of God, which is through me and through all of you who are Christians, helps us overcome that fear and replaces the fear so we can become fantastic apologists and polemicists, convincing apologists and defenders of the Christian faith as well as challengers of Islam. So I just want to start with that exhortation as we now go into looking at a few more uh, hadith. We have looked at a lot of, uh, of the Quran and a lot of verses from the Quran, the biography of Muhammad, I now want to look a little bit more at the hadith. Now, these are Sunni hadith, and um, some Shia uh, Muslims would maybe uh, reject these because they're Sunni. However, the Shia and Sunni Muslims do sometimes cross over when it comes to some of their sayings of what they think uh, Muhammad said in, in the hadith. Now, um, I want to just point out that a lot of what we've done in our sessions together might have come across to you as extremely uncomfortable, some of the subject matter we've had to deal with. And also, I recognize that a lot of what I've said seems to be in the whole context of sexuality and um, a very sexualized uh, sort of a, a view of Islam. Folks, I just need to clarify that even as I was preparing for even this next talk, as I was looking through all of the the, the hadith that we've compiled and I was looking at just the overall theology of woman and man in Islam, it just forever seems to go back to one topic and one topic alone. And even hadith that are dealing with something else, we're going to look at hadith to, to do with divorce and beating and the obedience of a woman to a man and the opinions that maybe uh, that Muslim men have of women and so on. And still in these hadith, it still goes back to this whole sexualized nature of, of the woman um, in the Islamic theology. This is a problem of Islam. This is not my problem. This is not a biblical problem. This is the problem of Islam. And it's not and, and, and sexuality in its right context in the, in, in the whole area of, of the bond of marriage is a beautiful thing. But in any other context, it's a perversion. And so, and so with Islam, it just has this um, addiction, if you like, to this topic. So I, I'm going to just wanted to clarify that that is why this, these uncomfortable topics keep coming up. Nevertheless, I'd like to try um, refocus and start looking at a few other topics to do in the sayings and the hadith. 
So uh, let me just start by reading one hadith, Sahih Bukhari, volume 7, book 72. Now I'm just going to throw hadith after hadith after, after hadith um, to you because I think that just by reading their texts, we, we get a better understanding of the, the sort of mindset the Muslim has and, and why we see the kinds of behaviors that we see in the Muslim world when we just read their texts and see what is influencing them and influencing their thinking and their behavior. So let's just read this hadith. Um, Rifa'a divorced his wife, um, and then he's, he he um, he he was talking to he was talking to some other Muslims. Then it said Aisha, so this is Muhammad's young wife, um, said that the lady came wearing a green veil and complained to her of her husband. So a woman came to Aisha, was complaining about her husband, and showed her the green spots on her skin that were caused by the beating. It was the habit of the ladies to support one another. So the Muslim ladies would support one another. So start reading in between the lines here. So when Allah's apostle came, Aisha said, I have not seen any woman suffering as much as the believing women. Look, her skin is greener than her clothes. So Aisha is complaining to Allah, to, to Allah's apostle that the, the, the Muslim women, the believing women, um, seem to be suffering and it was being beaten by the husbands more than any other woman. Now, another hadith, Sunan Abu Dawood, book 11, and apparently Muhammad said this, the prophet said, a man will not be asked as to why he beat his wife. So it seems to be that a Muslim man can get away with, with beating his wife and he will not be asked about it. Now, remember, we've looked at beating in the, in the, in the, in the um, Quran and we saw in Surah 434 that what beating means. And a lot of Muslims try to say it just means lightly. Well, that's why we're going to zero in on the sayings of Muhammad to see what this looks like. So far, it looks like the woman's uh, skin was green from the bruising. Then another uh, another hadith says, Sunan Abu Dawood, again, uh, book 11. It talks about how um, uh, it says, the apostle of Allah, and of course Muslims always say, peace be upon him, uh, uh, which I'm not going to say, but that's what Muslims say. And as he is saying, do not beat Allah's handmaiden, hand, handmaidens. But when Umar came to the apostle of Allah, and said, women have become emboldened towards their husbands. And there's quite a few hadith about this, um, where the women, the Muslim women have become emboldened towards their husbands. And he, the prophet, gave permission to beat them. Then many women came round the family of the apostle of Allah, complaining against their husbands. So the apostle of Allah said, many women have gone round to Muhammad's family complaining against their husbands, they are not the best among you. And I would say, I think it's pretty legitimate if a Muslim woman complains that the husbands are beating them. But for Muhammad to respond and say, they are not the best among you for complaining, what does that say about Muhammad? What kind of man is this? He doesn't seem to think it's okay for the women to complain about what the men are doing to them. Then we have another story, and this is from book 13 of Abu Dawood. A woman came to the Prophet while we were with him, and she said, Apostle of Allah, my husband beats me when I pray and makes me break my fast when I keep a fast, and he does not offer the dawn prayer until the sun rises. He asked Safwan, who was present, about what she had said. He replied, Apostle of Allah, as for her statement, uh, her statement, he beats me when I pray, she recites two surahs two uh, chapters of the Quran during prayer, and I have prohibited from doing so. 
He, the prophet, said, if one surah is recited, that is sufficient for the people. Safwan, who is the husband, continued, as regards her, for her to her saying, he makes me break my fast. She dotes on fasting. I am a young man and I cannot restrain myself. The apostle of Allah said on that day, a woman should not fast except with the permission of her husband. Now, remember, um, fasting, the implication between the lines of this verse is when a man and woman fast in Islam, you're not allowed to have sexual intimacy. So when the young man is saying, I can't restrain myself, he's upset because his wife continues to fast during the day. So there's all sorts of things happening in here. But it just then Muhammad seems to always affirm what the husband wants. He goes with always what the husband wants um, against what she wants. And then here's another one. Now, this is in the farewell address of Muhammad. This is from Al-Tarmidi, um, who's one of the well-known exegetes, very popular and very important for Islamic theology. And um, it's a, uh, the hadith goes, Amir heard the prophet in his farewell address, which is very important, um, on the eve of the last pilgrimage, after he had glorified and praised Allah. He cautioned his followers, listen Listen, treat women kindly. They are like prisoners in your hands. Beyond this, you do not owe them anything. Should they be guilty of flagrant misbehavior, you may remove them from your beds. This is Surah 434. And beat them, but do not inflict upon them any severe punishment. Then if they obey you, they do not have recourse to anything else against them. You have rights upon your wives and they have rights upon you. Your right is that they should not allow anyone you dislike to trample your bed and do not permit those whom you dislike to enter your home. Their right is that you should treat them well in the matter of food and clothing. So the right of a woman to a husband is that all she has is that he will provide for her. He will maintain her financially, provide her food and clothing. But her right is to protect his rights. And so again, you just see a disparity in how men and women are to treat each other according to Muhammad. Now, some Muslims will say, oh, these are not authoritative verses. The problem is they're found in so many different genres of literature in Islam. And, and, the, and yes, there are variations in some of these hadith. And, and of course, there's a whole complicated science, according to Islam, on how you know if something is authoritative or not. But there's so many of these that you begin to think, how can all of them be wrong? Um, and also, how do you pick and choose which is right and which is not? And so it becomes all very complicated. But the evidence of wealth points towards um, a prophet called Muhammad, according to Islam, who is helping the men. And even when the women complain, they don't seem to have much um, a recourse or way to, to, to uh, be heard about the abuse that they are receiving. So women can only fast when given by permission by the husband. Um, a woman has to protect uh, the, the man's rights. And then a woman must blindly obey. So narrated by Abu Huraira, who is one of the uh, most prolific narrators, apparently, of Muhammad's sayings. And this is in Tirmidhi as well. When Allah's messenger was asked which woman was best, this is how Muhammad responds. The one who pleases her husband when he looks at her, obeys him when he gives a command and does not go against his wishes regarding her person or property by doing anything of which he disapproves of. Again, is that the biblical view of what a good wife is? This again, do you see how it's a man controlling a woman? She's under his authority. It, there's many more. We're going to continue. 
Then there's a very interesting story. I'm not going to read the whole um, uh, hadith to you. I'm just going to paraphrase it. It's in Sahih Muslim book four. And in Sahih Muslim book four, you have a story of Aisha. It's the middle of the night and Muhammad goes out and she sneaks out and she's following him. And she's, she then, he then returns um, home. And so she's running to make sure she gets there ahead of him. And you can see how she knows she's not supposed to be doing this. Remember, this is the child bride. So she races home and then she, she comes in and gets there ahead of him. And then... Um, I, um, so uh, Muhammad must have noticed and he says, Aisha, why are you out of breath? And she says, there is nothing. He said, tell me all the subtle and the aware. That's how he's describing God. The subtle and the aware will, will inform me. I said, messenger of Allah, may my father and mother be ransomed for you. And then I told him the whole story of where she'd followed him out. He said, was it the darkness or your shadow that I saw in front of me? So you must have seen her. And I said, yes. And then he struck me on the chest and caused me pain and then said, did you not think that Allah and his apostle would deal unjustly with you? So here is an example of a Muhammad um, hitting his favorite girl bride and causing her pain. Just read this hadith to a Muslim. Then uh, there's more uh, verses. So um, there's a ver- there's a hadith that talks about, it almost seems that Allah wills for women to be beaten. Um, when the Quranic verse, Surah 434, um, authorizing the beating um, of, of, a, of a, a, a disobedient wife was revealed, the prophet is reported to have said, I wanted one thing, but God willed another. And what God willed must be best. Folks, when you read the whole story of the hadith and the tafsir and um, the different uh, the different histories of Islam, you will be amazed. And I think it would be fantastic if someone could catalog every time Muhammad got a convenient revelation. It would be an amazing study, which some of us need to do at some point. And you catalog every convenient revelation Muhammad got. This is a verse that came where the husband was supposed to be uh, allowed to beat uh, to beat the wife, and Muhammad. <laughs> Muhammad seems to make it look like it's not really what he wanted, but it's what God wanted. And this sort of way that um, Muhammad manipulates God uh, to, to fit his own agenda and the agenda of the men um, is just, it's just right through the Islamic literature. Then um, there's a story that we have um, another a few more stories when it comes to divorce. Divorce is another topic um, that we need to look at. It's very easy for a man to divorce in Islam. And so we have the story in, this is Malik's Muawata, so this is actually um, Islamic law, Islamic fiqh. And um, one hadith um, is saying that if a man said to his wife, you are haram to me, it is counted as, th- as three pronouncements of divorce. So in Islamic theology, a man just says, um, I divorce you three times on three separate occasions, and she is divorced. But if a man just says, you are haram, that counts as the three times of divorce. And of course, he's then not allowed to remarry her after that. And so um, if this statement said, like, I cut myself off from you or you are abandoned, that as well um, means three, uh, like as if he said, I divorce you three separate times, on, on uh, three times on three separate occasions. So it's um, Abdul Malik, who is, is one of the main uh, sources of where Islamic law comes from, apparently, at least according to Islamic tradition, maybe not according to history, but according to Islamic tradition, um, it's, it's important even just how a man speaks to his wife, it, it, meaning that the marriage could be ended. It gets precarious 
Do you know, I was walking, watching a documentary. It was a, a documentary that was done in Britain. It was a, um, someone had gone into the Sharia's um, law courts in Britain. We have quite a few Islamic law courts that are recognized by the British government. And there's over 80 or so functioning around the, the country, but they're not necessarily recognized. And um, they did some secret filming in one of these Sharia law courts, and it was shown on TV. And they showed a scenario of a man who had accidentally divorced his wife. And under Islamic law, because he had accidentally divorced her by what he said, they had to go back to the Sharia law courts to see um, if, the, if the divorce held up or not. And of course, under, un, according to the Quran and according to Islamic law and the Hadith, uh, a woman has to, uh, if, if a woman is divorced, she has to go marry someone else. As, when she marries someone else and the marriage is consummated, then that man divorces her and then she can go back to that original husband. So if a man accidentally divorces his wife, can you imagine the sort of heartbreak that um, it happens just because she has to then go sleep with another man in order to come back to, to the original husband? It gets very complicated when you literally apply um, Islamic law and, and the sayings of Muhammad and the, and the Quran itself um, to, the, to every day life. Then we have another story here, and um, this is again from uh, Malik's Muawata, book 29. And um, it talks, it seems to imply that men can get divorced, but not women. So here's what it says. If a woman is divorced and has, has one or two periods and then stops menstruating, she must wait nine months. Something to remember about uh, Islamic, uh, um, Islamic, or the Quranic, I should say, uh, Quranic stories is that when a woman um, is divorced, she has to wait uh, a certain amount of time to make sure she's not pregnant. The same happened when the men of Muhammad's time were going into the villages and they were pillaging the villages and they were taking the women for themselves and um, they had to wait to make sure she wasn't pregnant before they could take her um, as a concubine or as a, a wife. So we know according to the Quran and uh, the Hadith, the saints of Muhammad, that she had to wait her idah, is a certain, uh, time, uh, a certain length of time to make sure she wasn't pregnant. So this is what this is talking about. So a woman is divorced, you have to wait a few periods, menstruation cycles, and then if she stops menstruation, you wait nine months to make sure she's not pregnant. If it is clear that she is pregnant, uh, if it is clear that she is pregnant, or if not, she must do an idol three months, and after nine, then she is free to marry. So if she's not pregnant, she's free to marry. Yahya related to me from Malik that Yahya ibn Sayyid said that Sayyid ibn al-Musayyib, now why have I read all that? Because according to Islam, you have to have what they call isnad, you have to have a chain of transmission. I mean, the chain of transmission, the most authoritative go back to Muhammad himself. So it's oral tradition passed on um, through the generations. And so um, he, it's, 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 it's said down through the links and then it said, then it says, divorce belongs to men and women have the idah. So divorce belongs to men. Men can get divorced, but the women, all they have is they just have to wait and see whether they're pregnant or not after they are divorced. And certainly, folks, if any Muslim comes to you and they say that women can be divorced as well, just take them to the Quran. Their book does not even imply that women can get a divorce. There is a verse and there is an idea in Islam that when a woman wants a divorce, she has to give 
give her bridal price back. So a Muslim man doesn't have to give anything back, but a woman has to give her bridal price back, which means if she asks for a divorce, she loses all of her money. She loses everything. And there's scenario after scenario in the Muslim world where a woman is horrendously abused, but she cannot leave the home because she would have to give all of her maintenance back to the husband. Now, I'm not saying I want an easy divorce. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's just such a pro-male activity in the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad. So easy for men to divorce when women have to go through arbitration, according to Islamic law. They have to go to the law courts. They have to go to the Islamic male judges to be given a divorce. The, um, the, the, the documentary I was telling you about earlier um, showed these women going to the Sharia law courts for help. Some of these women were in horrendous situations. One woman had a, a very sad story where her husband was watching and doing pornography and leaving pornography around the family home and, and in front of the children. We well, can imagine what that does to a child that's damaging to a child. And you saw this woman, she was an, a British Muslim and she'd gone to the Sharia law courts and she was, uh, of course, feeling very positive because it was Islamic law courts, not the British law courts. And she was weeping to the judges and saying, please help me. My husband is, my, my children have been exposed to the stuff. Please help me. I need protection from what my husband is doing. Please tell my husband to stop. And those Muslim jurors sent her back into the home with her kids, back into the home. There's other stories that we know in London where uh, women have been beaten brutally by the husband. And the Muslim jurists in London sent those women back into the home. You see, if those Muslim women had gone to the British law courts, they would have been protected. Even if they didn't divorce, there would have been protection. They would have been put into social services. Those children would have been protected. But going under Islamic law means vulnerable, the vulnerable women and the vulnerable children who are getting battered and bruised by their husbands, even in Britain, are now not being protected. And yet we live in a nation there that we should be able to protect our vulnerable. That's not the case for many Muslim women around the world. For example, they did a poll in Turkey. This is maybe 10 over 10 years ago, where in Turkey, they did a poll asking the women of Turkey if they thought it was okay for their husbands to beat them. 45% of Turkish women, at least who were asked the question in this poll, thought that it was, it was perfectly legitimate for their husbands to beat them. That's in Turkey. You think if Turkey is that way, what is it in other countries like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, and other Indonesia and so on? See, Islam fosters an environment where even the women think it's legitimate when their husbands wound them. Do you recall the story I said in a few sessions earlier where my friend was traveling through in a Muslim country? And she'd gone into the home of a Muslim home and seen a woman battered and bruised. And because she loved this woman, she had to show her these hadith that I've read to you of the beatings as well as Surah 434 and so on, that it was her God Allah and her prophets that she followed that had allowed her to, be, uh, to have been beaten so that she was hospitalized for weeks on end. And yet she, when she was initially challenged, what did that dear Muslim woman 
husband do? She started defending her husband. But of course she does because Muhammad says it's okay, as does the Quran. Folks, we become polemicists because we want to help our Muslim friends think through the weaknesses of their religion. My ex-Muslim friend who told this dear Muslim lady in that Muslim country that it was her God and her prophet that had told her she could get beaten, she did that because she loved that woman. And as a result of loving that woman to expose the Islamic religion, she brought her Muslim friend back in, into Christ for the first time. And that woman is now going to, is part of the eternal family of God that you and I also belong to.